We've called it Good Work this series. And uh, I hope you've seen through this, these six, seven weeks of how meaningful your work can be, even when it seems as if uh, it's meaningless. There's meaning that God pours into it through the ability he's given to us, uh, through the good work he's called in advance for us to do. And we've tried to expand this series to help you see that whether you're in full-time work or not, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're retired, any stage of your life, God has a calling on your life and uses the gifts and ability he's given to you to call you to do good work. And so I want to, I want to end that series today on, a, I think, a note that will send us out with encouragement today. But I want to begin with prayer as we open God's word today. God, we, uh, we invite you into the space and into this time. You are the Lord, our God, and you are always faithful, God. Uh, and, and right now in the midst of uh, our, our silence, God, in the midst of this prayer, even in the midst of opening the word again today, we ask that you would do what you've done for centuries through your spirit that you would speak to us through your word, that you would guide us with encouragement where it's needed, that you would give us rebuke and exhortation where it's needed, God, and we would be open and have soft hearts to do what's needed in response to your word today. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. I believe that with every fiber of my being. The story that we use to narrate the world around us shapes the way we think about work. It shapes the way we think about family. It shapes the way we think about our future. And there's a lot of money that's being poured into businesses, into advertising, into movies, into music to try to shape a story and narrative in your life. And you have a choice of which story you're going to buy into, that you're going to live your life toward. In fact, I think this is why we like the Olympics so much every time when it comes around. We love the competition. We love this feeling of mutuality in a world that seems like it's always uh, divided. I think we love the stories even more than the competition, don't we? It's the Tongan, you know, who comes in with his shirt off, by the way, of course. So I don't know what that's all about. But, but he finishes the race, right? He knows he's not going to win the race. But there's something about the challenge of finishing a race. He's not even last. There's a, a Mexican uh, that comes in behind him that he lifts and, uh, and welcomes to the finish line, right? We see the world coming together and we see these stories and there's something about that that moves us, that shapes us for the work that we do as well. And something we know about story that we sometimes forget in our own lives is that the greater the the conflict in any story, the better the story it is, right? I mean, you don't want to watch a movie where it's all good up and to the right, right? I mean, it's always conflict and, and sometimes it's overcome and sometimes... There's a different outcome to the story, but the story has this arc to it. It has this way of telling it. And our, our minds light up at a story that's well told. We're created to delight in story, to create new stories, and to see our lives through the shape of a story. And you can choose for that to be any kind of story that the world will throw at you, but we see the world through stories. And as I said, marketers and advertisers understand the power of story. They know that If they can get a chance to get at your money, they'll tell a good story to tell you what's at the end of that, then you might uh, buy into their product. In fact, I think we'd be shocked if we saw the money and the energy that's devoted to telling stories so that we would throw our money at things. Sometimes we think of Facebook as a free uh, item, and it is, but in reality, Facebook is using every keystroke we input on its site to monetize our interests, our anger, our division, and our difference. We, we, in, in reality, uh, my job is to tell stories. That's what you pay me to do. It's, it's to come in and convince you all over again each week of the story you've committed your life to, to 
to make it compelling in the same ways as the other stories that we fill our news feeds and our television screens with. And in reality, the Bible is doing the very same thing. The Bible is not necessarily a code of ethics. It has codes of ethics in it. It's not a history book, though you can certainly see history within it. It's a story, isn't it? It's a story of God meeting his people and the people that are you know, relating to that, telling the story of how God's met them in the past and how God will choose to meet them again in the future. God engages us through story. I was in a Bible class this morning where we were talking about story and a specific story where Jesus meets people and calls us to more. See, the Bible is a counter story to the other stories that are being told at the time of its writing. For instance, the Genesis story is being told in the midst of a culture where there are other creation myths about the way the world was created. And those myths told a story about who we are and why we're important and why we're significant. But scripture tells a counter to that. It tells a story about a God who loves his humans that he creates, that wants partnership and relationship and sees value in us, that actually stamps his image on us. It's a different story than all the others. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. And as I said, every story has an arc to it. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And every great story has great conflict. Now, a side note to that, we love it when our heroes, our protagonists in the story, overcome great odds and overcome their own personal conflict. You realize that's often the case, right? That usually in these stories, they overcome something big, but often they're overcoming some conflict personally themselves. And the tools that they earn from that are able to be used in that greater struggle. What if we were to see our own conflicts in the same way? To enter into them to see what is it that can be taught? What is it that can be learned in this that we can pass on? What if we saw conflict as somehow even a a treasure that we could unopen, that something is going to be learned through this that will be used for the sake of the larger story that God is writing? If you think back on it, right, the times of greatest growth in your life have not been moments of ease and comfort. They've been moments of difficulty and challenge the moment you stepped out and you didn't quite know where it was all going to be and where it was going to come from, but God sustains you through it. The ending, though, of the story you choose to believe in will shape your present as well. And there's different endings to the story, uh, different interpretations that people have about the ending to the story. We've talked a lot about Genesis, but for a moment, I want to talk about the last book in the Bible. You all know there's probably a lot of interpretations out there about Revelation. There's been a lot of ideas about all that. In the 1970s, there was a certain understanding of that that became a lot more popular. Uh, The big word for it is premillennial dispensationalism. That's just a fancy word that means a a view of revelation that ends with the rapture. This idea that there's going to be this awful battle in the Middle East called Armageddon and and and, and Jesus was going to return, and then there will be a thousand-year reign. And it's important to know how recent a development this story or this ending or interpretation actually is. It only goes back to about the 19th century uh, in, in, in the way it's been told most recently. Uh, guys like J.N. Darby, Schofield, a guy who had impact here in Dallas, Moody, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, these are voices that have shaped our imagination and the idea of the end around that. Some of you remember in the 1970s a book and then a movie that came out called The Late Great Planet Earth. Al, Hal Lindsey was the guy who came up with the story. Maybe some of you have a, some fear in your mind, some bad dreams that you had because of that. It was a story about this fiery ending, right? And how we had to be, all be ready for this moment that was coming up. And those of you who are younger uh, may remember more the, the Left Behind series. A lot of books came out uh, around that. Tim LaHaye and, and others were the, the writers of, of that. And I want you to think about what that does when that's the way you view the end of the world. Right? If, if the world's going to get burnt up and we're somehow going to escape because the good news is we get to escape 
earth, right? Because this is it's a bad place and someplace else is really where the life is. Well, that shapes the way we think about the work, right, that we do. But there's other histories, other interpretations, other understandings about the end that shape a different way of seeing our work. And we get to choose the story that we live into based on what Scripture tells. How you see the end of the story impacts how you live in the here and now. And even if you're not a Christian who bought into this rapture stuff, traditionally in our movement, we've been more amillennial, which is to see that more as a metaphor, the thousand-year reign. And I think there's good reasons to read it that way. Maybe I'll preach that series in 20 years or something like that. But, um, you know, I did grow up with a sense, not necessarily of that reading, but that the world was going to get burned up and destroyed. And that was kind of the story was that, you know, one day we'll get kind of to escape from earth. We'll get to go to this cloudy existence. And what I want to tell you is that story that I learned had more to do with the story that Plato told rather than the story that Jesus and the early writers of scripture told. It was a story that was really built on this Greek idea that really our, our souls are good. What's inside of us is good and, and our bodies are bad and, ma- and matter is bad and pleasure is bad. If we could just escape the trappings of our bodies, we could have this disembodied existence where we could live as we truly wanted to live. And so most of the stories that we've told about the end has had this hope that hasn't been about God's care and love for this world or his care for our bodies. Uh, a lot of our bad theology, our bad practices come from this kind of Greek understanding that really if we could just escape this earth and go somewhere else, then that's where our true hope lies. But Paul counters that very idea in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes about the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And he says, look, when you go to whatever this future is going to be, eternal life as God has it, I don't pretend to know what it's all like, but he says, you're going to have a body. And it's not going to be a broken body like you have now. It'll be a new and restored body. But he's trying to counter these Greek notions about really escaping this life to say, no, 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 the body is something. Resurrection is a, is a belief that the body is something that's good, that God's going to restore and hand back to us whole. Some of us long for those resurrected bodies when we wake up in the morning. Amen, right? And Jesus talks about this. The early writers of Scripture, you know, I didn't get this understanding growing up, but it shapes the way I viewed my work. And I wanted to help you see some other perspectives maybe on how this all We'll end. Uh, Matthew 19 is the first place I'd like to go to. These are the words of Jesus that talk about uh, several things I want to pick up on. The restoration of all things, the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of all things. This is is language that Scripture itself points to us. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or mother or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Turn with me to the book of Acts, a few books later on. We'll also have it on the screen and if you have that app open. It's there as well. But Acts chapter three, uh, verse 19, listen to how the early believers talked about this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Even Jesus, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. There's this idea of restoration, of renewal. Colossians 1 is another of these places. It's a key passage telling us about who Jesus is. At the beginning of Colossians 1, it talks about 
there that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. That he was there at creation. He was there creating with God. But as we read on, listen to this. This is Colossians 1 verse 19. In the, second, the first half of verse 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And then finally, Revelation 21, a passage we've read plenty of times before and we'll read again, but it is our future hope. Just listen to the language here again of the future that John imagines uh, is revealed to him in this vision. Again, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, there's a lot of mystery about this. And, 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 and the truth is we don't fully know what the future is going to look like. I think we can trust the one who holds the future, right? We know that God's got a good future for us, but this gives a different picture in some ways of God's care of his desire to restore and reconcile and, and renew all things. And if that's the case, if God cares that much about the earth and the world he's created, even the bodies that will be resurrected, maybe that shapes our work in a new way. I think this has a lot to do with our work, because the story we tell ourselves about how life ends shapes how we live in this current moment. If you believe God's going to destroy the world, then why give your life and work to things that will ultimately be destroyed, right? But if actually this world is something that God wants to hang on to, to restore and to renew, then maybe there's something about our work that carries on even into eternity. And if that's where it's all headed, It's not like building a house of cards with a toddler in the room, right? That's a devastating thing time and time again. You know you're going to be building it again, right? Play Jenga with kids or even, you know, maybe maybe your husband's not quite as, you know, got it together as you, right? You know that thing's going to come tumbling down. But what if God wants to restore and renew? How does that shape and change? It it actually brought me to a, a story, a short story that's not all that well known by a guy that you probably have read from, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was a, a Christian, a believer. He was a close friend of C.S. Lewis and was a big reason why he converted from atheism to Christianity. And you may know him best as the writer of The, the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, amazing if you look into the background of that, creating a whole language and a whole world that's consistent there uh, in these stories. Well, while Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings, he came to an impasse in his writing. He was struggling as a perfectionist that wanted to to let this be his life's work and to complete this trilogy. And he was working hard to make sure that happened. The problem uh, increased because he was writing this during World War II in Britain. And uh, in the midst of bombings that were happening, in the midst of wondering, even though he wasn't going to be going into the military as a 50-year-old, he wondered if he might die as a civilian. And so he's just trying to do everything he can to get this life's work out, wondering what the future is going to hold. And he was despairing of even being able to complete this work. In the midst of these questions, Tolkien woke up one morning to a tree, a tree that he'd walked by plenty of times on the road outside of his house that had been destroyed. It, it, had, it had fallen over, and uh, it was a neighbor that had actually mutilated the tree. And, and he saw this as an ominous sign that maybe this, was, this tree was a kind of a symbol of his life, that maybe he wasn't going to be able to complete, that he would die before he got to finish his life's work. But one night in the midst of all this, bombs are coming down during World War II as he's wondering if he'll be able to finish the great work of his life. 
A short story comes to mind as he wakes up, and he puts pen to paper, takes time away from the rest of his writing, and he, he writes down this short story. He titled that story, Leaf by Niggle. The story was about a painter named Niggle. And interestingly enough, Tolkien was a contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary, which defined the word niggle as to work in a fiddling or ineffective way to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Now, when Niggle was talking about this, he was, of course, referring Tolkien to himself because Tolkien saw himself in this light. Tolkien was a perfectionist. He was a procrastinator. He tried to get everything right down to the greatest detail. He fussed over those important details. Part of the reason his work has been as longstanding as it has. But he was prone to worry and procrastination, and Niggle was the same in this story. Niggle had one picture in mind of a, a leaf that he was drawing. He was an artist, and so he was trying to get this leaf down, and he saw a broader picture of a tree, Niggle did, that he wanted to paint as well. And his life's work was to hope that he could complete this task. He put away all of his other paintings to vote, devote his energy to this one tree, and he spent a lot of time on that leaf. There were two problems with him finishing this with the time he had left in his life. First, he was the sort of painter that who, who can paint leaves better than trees. Again, his eye was there for the details of the leaf, but he struggled to see the larger picture. Um, uh, and, and the second reason for his delay, the struggle to complete it, was he had a kind heart. So every time somebody would ask him to do something, he would leave his task to go help whoever it was that was challenging him. So one night, Niggle senses that his time is about to come. So he's feverishly trying to finish this painting that's there. And all of a sudden, his neighbor calls on him to go and fetch a doctor for his sick wife, the neighbor's wife. So he goes out and braves the cold and the wet. Unfortunately, Niggle comes down with cold himself and ends up dying before he's able to finish his life's work. Sometime after his death, the people who had acquired his house noticed that there was still this painting on the canvas and there was this leaf not quite finished that was intact. The story didn't end there. After death, Niggle goes on this journey to the afterlife as it's painted by Tolkien, the picture himself. When he gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye when he gets there. He runs to it. There it is, the leaf and the tree he'd been trying to paint his entire life. He gazed at the tree and, and slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. And he said, it is a gift. It is a gift. In the world before his death, he could rem would remain unknown, his work unfinished. But in this heavenly territory, in his new country, in this permanently real world, he finds his tree full of detail, completely finished. It was not just a fancy that had died with him. No, it had long lasted in the true reality beyond his life. I don't know what that story does to you, but that makes me think that maybe my work matters more than I would imagine. Maybe it lasts beyond what I think. And I think it's true. Our work matters. Your work matters far more than you may be able to see. And the way we believe that the story ends shapes the way we work in the present moment. I'm a shameless promoter of the Jesus story. I think it's the best story that there is. And that's why I've chosen to give my work to this. I believe I'm gifted to tell this story, but I hope it's clear and how I've tried to give you a picture through this series of how you view your work, that your work is not less important than my work. Your, your work is no less sacred than my work. Your work is no less caught up in the work of God than my work. In fact, I think your work matters as much, if not more, than my work. And I want to tell you why. 
Open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verse 1, and then I want to follow up with more of this book in just a moment. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul writes, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, all during this series, we, I've been trying to help you see what is the calling you've received. What are the God, good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? So I don't know if you have that in mind clearly now or not. But he says, I want you to live a life that's worthy of that calling that you have received. Now, now go back to, to, to chapter 2 real quick. I want to read Ephesians 2, verse 10. I read this earlier in the series, but I want to take us back there. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you remember what precedes this in verse 8, it says, it's by grace you've been saved, not by works that no one can boast. What Paul's saying is, whatever your life work is, it's not going to save you. You are saved. The grace is yours if you're in Jesus Christ. Your identity is secure. But then he follows up in verse 10 and he says, because that's secure, because you know who you are and you're not earning anything in your work, you're free to do the good work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So live a life worthy of a calling. I prepared advance, in advance works for you to do ahead of time. God, God shaped you and saw works that you would accomplish in your life. Maybe in the true reality, that leaf is already there, whatever it looks like in your work ahead of you. Go back to chapter 4 one more time. He gives a picture of the body of Christ at large, the church, and how we work together to pull off the story of what God's writing in the entire universe. Listen to this, verse 11. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, you know, 11 to 14 in that section. He talks about the body of Christ. He says, Christ is the head. And in Ephesians 4, he goes even further to say, look, God has divided up the gifts in this body in different ways. They're leaders. They're, they're, they're evangelists and prophets and teachers. They're all these things that, that equip the body for works of service. And then it talks about those ligaments, those supporting ligaments that hold this body together. It's the same image that Paul uses. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And and there are different parts that we play, but all of those parts are important. The ear can't say to the eye, we don't need you. It would be of no use, right, the body. All of the parts are important. And it's important that each of us know what our part is to play, that we employ our gifts for the sake of the kingdom. But what he says here is, look, there are some who are called in the body as these different roles in order to equip the body of Christ for works of service. That's my job. The leader, leadership here, it's our job to equip you as the body of Christ in all the different ways that you're to live in the world, to do the tasks that you've been called to do. You know, the reason I chose to do this series was because of a conversation I had in 2010. I had a conversation in the midst of a preacher group with a former preacher who's left ministry and is doing great work in the city of Dallas. He used to preach uh, in Richardson. His name's Larry James. And, and Larry has been a mentor to me. I'm grateful for his ministry and his life. But these are words that he said that 
help me reimagine how important this conversation is. He said to this young group of ministers in 2010, he said, the people who are sitting in the boardrooms on Monday and the court benches and classrooms and creative meetings on Monday are sitting in the pews on Sunday. The problem is preachers aren't helping them connect what they do with the gospel. You realize what we have in this room? The kind of influence that could happen if all of us committed ourselves with one voice to the cause of Christ and to the kingdom of God? To realize the gifts that you have in the areas I'll never be able to touch. And we gather in this room and we gather all across the city in different churches trying to remind ourselves of a story so that we can be pushed back into the world to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. You're a double agent of the kingdom of God. You work for your boss. The Colossians remind us you're also working for the Lord. I hope you've been listening closely to this entire series. I know many of you may be asking a new set of questions around what your life's calling may be. Some of you are early on in this journey and you're thinking about your future and others of you are maybe at a a middle point in your life where you're wondering, have I really made the impact I wanted to make? And is this the career I ought to stay in? Others of you are maybe considering right now the new jobs that you're in process of applying for, wondering what's next for you. Some of you are struggling right now to figure all that out. And I'll tell you this morning, I don't have the answer for you. But if you remember anything from the series, I hope you remember what I'm about to say to you. You know, people call me a minister. And when I sit on an airplane or I'm on the golf course and I meet strangers or I'm in a chair getting my hair cut, sometimes that question will come up. Hey, what do you do? And you've never seen a conversation stopper like, well, I'm a minister. And usually in that moment, they'll, you know, kind of play back the tape on everything they've said in the conversation up till that point. Sometimes apologize for a joke or for a word that they said that might have been one I wouldn't approve of. And and when I think about that, I think there's a recoil in our culture about ministry in that sense. But when you as a lawyer or a teacher or a life insurance agent or a sanitation worker, when you do your job and you tell people you do that, no one recoils. Even though you're a double agent at the same time. So you're able to be so much more subversive than I am. Sometimes I'm tempted to tell people, well, I'm a motivational speaker or I'm a communicator. I don't like to admit I'm a preacher, but I try to be honest with that. But you've got doors that are open to you that'll never be open to me. You've got that lack of recoil that allows you to walk into people's lives having no idea that you're praying for them even more than I know how to as the minister. My job is to tell the story every week. A job along with the rest of our leaders is to equip you for the works of service you're called to do. And then every week I send you out and I say, uh, may, uh, may, may we love God. May we love people. May we serve others. Go in peace. You're a minister. You're a minister. In fact, you've got a church. You just may have never seen it that way before. Every day when you walk into your work or your calling, there's a group of people that you pastor, that you minister to. After seven weeks of the series, I'm sure there's still a sizable group of people that are still wondering, Colin, that's great. I'm sure a lot of people have found why their work matters, but I'll still tell you, Colin, my work doesn't matter. And my response is, that may be true. But no matter how 
minuscule your task seems. The people you work with and work for do matter. It doesn't matter how small the task is, how meaningless your work seems to matter. The people you serve matter. The people you teach matter. The people you work for and serve matter. The people you love at work and the people you despise at work. They're all created in God's image and they matter deeply to God. And that alone means that your work matters. My guess is that your work calls you to accomplish tasks. And you're probably graded and reviewed on those tasks you complete. But your calling has more than tasks. Because God has put you in touch with people who he cares about deeply. God has put you in touch with people who lack meaning in their lives. God has put you in touch with people who are hurting. Some of you walk into their lives at their most desperate moments. God has put you in touch with people who are being pursued by God. The question is, are you pursuing them with God as well? You are their minister. They are your church. Some of you are ministers of house churches because you don't come in contact with that many people in the calling that you devoted your life to. But you come in close contact with a few. Serve that house church well. But others of you, you didn't know this, but you're mega church ministers. You work in this massive corporation. You come across people all the time, maybe even all over the world every week. And you didn't know it, but you're a minister. You're a mega church minister because you have a church. This could change everything for you tomorrow morning if you came to see your work in this way. If you came to see every employee, every employer, if you came to see every client, student that you teach, if you came to see every trash can that you pick up or every sink that you clean, if you saw all of those things and the people associated with them as people in your church that you're called to minister to, it might just change everything. Keep doing the tasks. Keep going about the writing. Keep doing all the things you were tasked with doing. But you know what? In our culture, the bar is so low, isn't it? I mean, it would mean something to the people around you if you just remembered their name because no one else remembers their name. And if you could just remember this next week what their name is and call them by that name, it might just change everything because the bar is so low. Or if you remember the, the, their, their, their spouse who lost their job and you remembered and said, hey, I want you to know I've been thinking about you and I've been praying for you. You remembered her name and the situation. It would, it would go further than you can imagine just that. Or maybe it's their child who was just diagnosed with leukemia. No one else in the business seems to really see or care, but, but if you could just remember their name and, and let them know you're praying for them, who knows what doors it might open. We live in a, a culture with the bar being so low. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been called by God to this church, and I love this church. I love this work. But you've been called as well. You have a church, and we are the stories we tell ourselves. So go tell a better story to your church. Let's pray as we close this morning. Fathers, I think about those who are in the room and who were here this morning as well in first service. Just think about all of the influence that is available here, God. 
I think about the thousands, I think of the tens of thousands, I think of the hundreds of thousands of people that are put in touch with just those of us who are here in this church through the products that are made and through the meetings that are had, through the handshakes that secure deals, through the small tasks that seem to be completely meaningless. And God, I pray you would fill each one in this room and in this church with a vision that tomorrow morning when they go out, they're not just workers for their boss. They're not just people who own companies. They're people who have churches. They're ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ employed on his behalf, on your behalf. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear and listen. Give them a memory to remember just the names and the situations of the people around them. And I pray, God, you would, you would use their service and you would use their gifts and you would use the tasks they create all the products they, they, they create, God, to bless the people around them. That all of us have a leaf that we're painting with our lives. And it's easy to think that that leaf will only last to our lifetime in the end of it. God, we have hope that that work lasts far beyond that. But though the Jenga tower falls down, God, you're here to restore and renew and to reconcile and to recreate. God, would you recreate in and through us? God, give us vision for what this looks like. Help us to discover our calling and our task and the good work you've prepared in advance for us to do. And may we do good work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.